Hello and welcome to School Growth Mastery, produced by Enroll Hand, where we help schools, preschools, colleges and universities find their voice, connect with their ideal parents and grow their enrollment. We will bring on a diverse list of guests from school heads, admissions officers, marketing experts, parents and more, each with a unique insight into how you should grow your school in this changing landscape. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I'm joined by Tom van der Ark, CEO of Getting Smart, advisor to schools and author or co-author of over 50 books, including his latest, Better Together. He's a prolific writer. Seriously, I don't know how he does it all. Tom is one of my main sources of inspiration as I try to help schools in my own little way, and it was a serious honor to talk to him. We talk about how small schools can start their journey towards active learning, how to find the time to innovate in this very busy role as a school leader, how to deal with parent objections, how to face the pressures of testing and college acceptance. We also talk about school networks, which both Tom and the team here at Enrollhand strongly believe in. Networks can help you innovate. The link to school growth and marketing. Your product is your marketing. Seriously, working with over 200 schools now, we can see it. If you craft engaging learning experiences, it is so much easier to grow. Please listen to our discussion with Tom and look at the resources in the show notes. Enjoy. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Tom, uh, I have a, a question that has been haunting me uh, all the time while reading. I've been reading your, your posts a lot. Uh, a lot of the posts are about school districts, not all. How can small schools start a journey uh, towards personalized learning and competency-based learning? Well, I think uh, schools, districts, and networks should all start the journey in the same way by having a conversation with their school community. We modeled that yesterday in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, where we had a committee conversation about what's happening, what does it mean, how do we prepare kids. I've done thousands of those conversations, and they yield pretty good agreements around a, a set of goals and and a set of learning experiences. So I think starting with a a community conversation that leads to a few important goals is a great way to start. You refer to the like a vision of a graduate sometimes. Is that like something that might guide uh, such a discussion? Yeah, I, I, a portrait of a graduate, um, as our friends at Battelle for Kids would say, um, is is a great outcome of a community conversation. It clarifies a few goals that describe the, the, the kind of knowledge and skills the dispositions of uh, graduates. But one thing that some of our schools are facing as a constraint is failure. I mean, if you want to change things, you have to accept failure is part of the equation. And because education is a public good, a lot of school leaders feel they have to get it right on the first try, and they're, they're trying to avoid failure, um, and that's keeping them back. Any thoughts on that? Obviously, you don't want to do any harm to kids, but we find by starting small, um, my friend Pam Moran in Albemarle County, Virginia, would say, uh, try small, fail small. If, if you have a community conversation and, uh, and it's clear that you need to do a better job of engaging learners, you can uh, identify a couple teacher leaders and try a new lesson the next day. 
or you can try a new strategy in summer school. Then you can try it in a in a grade level team in the fall. So by starting small and iterating and learning as you go, uh, you, you can really minimize your risk. Yeah, that's a good uh, a good idea. And um, how about you know, say say schools want to start experimenting. Um, a lot of the smaller schools are overwhelmed. They're underwater. They don't feel they have the time. Do, do you think there is an issue of time? Is it just sure? How, how do we, like if if that's the answer? It's like I really would love to start doing some of these innovative yeah. methods, but I don't have the time. So yesterday I talked a lot about project-based learning. I'm a big advocate of engaging young people in extended challenges that are often community connected, authentic work and asking them to do uh, really challenging integrated projects that result in a public product. Um, the challenge is that that takes a lot of time. So you really do have to give teachers permission to work together, to plan units like that. And you have to make it clear that uh, the outcomes that you're most interested in, uh, the, the collaboration, creativity, the communication, uh, the persistence that you're going to build through a big project, that those are the most important outcomes. And uh, you have to make teachers comfortable with uh, the fact that they're not going to cover all the lessons that they used to cover. Uh, so the permission to focus on priority outcomes is really important and parents also have an issue with that sometimes so uh, it, i think finding the time and crafting a new agreement with the community is, is sometimes related in a way and I remember that watching the movie it, it about is. yeah uh, watching the movie about high tech high uh, most likely to succeed and the parents there they were having this this debate as well um would you say like project-based learning could also free time as students are working between themselves? Does it sometimes free up some time? Or maybe not initially, but like later on? It does. I, I'm a big believer in, in developing student agency where students own their own learning. That means on occasion, help uh, asking them to co-construct a project. It definitely means manage asking them to manage the project. And so that can free up some time for, for teachers to do some small group work with students that need, need more uh, time and attention. Technology has also helped on that front. Our friends at Christensen call it a time technology swap. At 10 years of blended learning, we've, we've learned to, to use technology in small group settings where you can have three groups that are working in, a, in an adaptive software and one group uh, that works with a, a teacher and so in that way, we've used technology to, to serve the needs of three quarters of the kids while the teacher can focus on a group of students that need the, need the most help. So these strategies can help buy time for teachers to spend time where they need it. It, it is important that if you're going to spend less time as a school on test preparation and more time on authentic project-based learning that uh, that's best done as part of a community conversation and a, a community agreement, and that parents um, 
see the evidence of that kind of work in the, the public product that students are bringing home uh, and that you, you have a, a reporting system, both formal and informal, that is sharing results with your community. Uh, what, what you want to avoid is focusing on an innovative set of strategies, not communicating about it, and then having test scores go down. Some communities are going to be willing to accept lower test scores if they have lots of other evidence that uh, students are engaged in learning, doing valuable and important work. There's two more things that I hear often when test, when we talk about test scores going potentially going down. One is college acceptance, and the other is authorizers. You know, do you have experience or previous examples of of school leaders managing those two? those two aspects of you know, moving from a more traditional school setting to more innovative school setting? Yeah, both of those are uh, important points. It's clear that uh, authorizers are going to look for a strong set of uh, test score results in basic skills. And you, you obviously want to avoid big declines in test scores to maintain your charter. So that it's an important factor. It does suggest that if you move to, um, to project-based learning, that you do focus on high-quality project-based learning. Uh, for us, that includes building projects that incorporate uh, reading, writing, and math standards. I, I like um, to incorporate written product in every uh, project. Uh, just because I feel so strongly about writing across the curriculum. So it, it is important to avoid shifting to project-based learning and having it be just uh, activities. These have to be valuable projects that are aligned with academic standards. On college entrance, it's a great question. I, uh, there are many colleges that still focus on uh, on ACT and SAT, but it is Fair to say that many colleges are beginning to look at broader forms of evidence. Even the most selective schools are interested in students that have unique capabilities and have a portfolio of evidence that uh, they're they're clear about what they're good at and what they're interested in, and that they've been making uh, contributions to their communities. So we do think it's important to help young people be able to tell their story. And we think a digital portfolio is a, a great way to do that. And in one of your previous interviews, you, you mentioned uh, Seth Godin's podcast uh, and how he talks about taking a new approach to college and like taking charge of, you, of your college outreach. I, I love Seth's uh, approach in general. You know, yeah, he, his, his mantra is really... Don't wait for the world to pick you. Yeah. Um, I met a young lady in, in Columbia, South Carolina yesterday who is an author, and she's written a number of short stories, and she was waiting for a publisher to pick her. And I said, you've got to start posting your work. You're a beautiful writer, and you, you need to share your stories with the world. And, and in the same way, Seth uh, argued, don't wait for a selective college to pick you, pick the college you want to go to, uh, get to know them, find the department you want to be in, find the faculty member that 
you want to mentor you and uh, get to know that person, read everything that they have written and comment on it and, uh, and be proactive about your choice. You know, we live in a world where the gatekeepers um, have really fallen away and where we each are, have the opportunity to, to be entrepreneurs, to, to have agency over our own, our, our own pathway. And so I think enabling young people in that way to really chart their own course and to be really proactive about who they are, what their superpowers are, and, and where and how they want to make a contribution in the world. I think that's terrific advice. We're trying to, to ask the same of school leaders to, you know, to take control of their destiny rather than submitting to external forces, which admittedly are very powerful forces. Uh, so we touched upon how, you know, don't want to get too much into policy, but we're talking to these, these small schools right now who feel pressured. We visited 20 schools, my brother, around Texas uh, two weeks ago. And test prep was a big part of the mindset and the fear. Do you think at this day and age, like you said, that, you know, colleges they, for students, they, they are in a certain way. But if you, if you do like Seth says, if you like are a purple cow, that's one of his terms. I'm going to link that in the show notes. You can maybe, you know, find a break. Do you think that yeah. school leaders can go to their authorizer and say, listen, yeah, here's my test scores, but here's my social emotional data. Here's, you know, different pro programs I'm running. And I want to actually present a different case to you. Is that, is that too yeah. early? Is that possible? How, well, absolutely. You... Uh, we, we've written uh, a series of three blog posts based on interviews with David Frank, who's the New York State authorizer. And, and David is a, a great example of a thoughtful authorizer that's trying to develop a broader set of metrics to guide the, the decisions of uh, the state of New York. He's actually encouraging schools to send him proposals for how to measure social and emotional learning. So I think it's clear to the authorizers that a, a narrow focus just on test scores is really inadequate uh, to gauge school success, and that schools really do need to focus on uh, college and career readiness, and that includes but isn't limited to, to standardized test results. So we think schools that are proactive about making the case for portrait of a graduate, a, a set of learning experiences that really promote those skills, and then a reporting system that better communicates to parents and students uh, how students are doing, and then finally equipping young people to tell their own story with evidence, with artifacts, with public product is, is super important. Yeah, pu public demonstrations of uh, projects are big you're yeah. a big proponent of that. I, you're talking about Texas. I'll give a quick story of El Paso. Uh, six years ago, that was the worst case of test prep in America. Test prep turned into cheating and embezzlement, and the state took over the district. And the new superintendent, Cabrera, launched a series of community conversations that yield, yielded a beautiful uh, portrait of a graduate and a focus on active learning. And that really became the mantra in the district, active learning. Uh, they, they started 10 new schools, all affiliated with the New Tech Network. And then they built a, an active learning uh, agenda that included extensive amounts of uh, professional development, 
linked to improved access to, to technology. And now six years later, they've had a nice increase in test scores, but it's also a district that pays attention to social emotional learning. They have a, a good dashboard of outcomes. Uh, they do a parent, teacher, and student satisfaction surveys. So I think that's a, a, a great example of a turnaround with a focus on a, on a broader uh, dashboard of outcomes. Yeah, and uh, I, I was talking in a similar discussion with Shelly Kurth from Five Public Schools, which I know you are very close with. And she was also mentioning how it's not like they're avoiding tests or tests are, are bad. They're just broadening the number of success metrics and the dashboards are following by, by a significant amount. And it's right. a number of different data streams that are coming in and are, are being assessed, uh, not just test scores. So they're actually seeing good test scores while they're implementing project-based learning. Yeah, Thrive is a great example of a one of the most thoughtful networks that we've seen. They have a very well uh, thought out approach to project-based learning and social emotional learning. Uh, they weave those into uh, every student day, and they do they do a great job of providing uh, thoughtful feedback to students and students that thrive are are great at being able to describe how they're growing and pointing to evidence. We're trying to here to help some smaller schools, you know, start this kind of journey. So you mentioned community discussions. Another thing you often mention is school visits as a very big catalyst. And I was listening to you talk with uh, the people at uh, S- Singapore American School recently. They, they, when they started, they did 100 school visits. How would you suggest school leaders start school visits and what should they notice when they start doing this? Yeah, it's great. Great question. Um, we do think school visits are the are the best possible way to learn. You can read about other schools or watch a video, but there's nothing short of actually visiting a place to get a sense of how it works. For secondary schools, we have a blog called 100 Middle and High Schools Worth Visiting. That's a good place to start. I link to that. Look for schools that stand for something. I, I guess what we found in common in all the great schools that we've visited is that they have a, a what Larry Rosenstock at High Tech High calls a common intellectual mission. They, they focus on a, a few core ideas that really create coherence for teachers and kids. One of the great things is that by focusing on a few core ideas, it not only helps your marketing and messaging, but it, it really um, improves the quality of your program by making um, everything work better for teachers and kids. If you really do stay focused on, on a few core ideas. Uh, so good, good schools all have these common intellectual missions. It's interesting when you go visit schools that the way that schools conceive their core uh, can be quite different. Some focus on a pedagogy like project-based learning. Uh, some focus on a, on a career cluster, you know, and a, and a job opportunity. Uh, some focus on, um, on a kind of a progress bargain like early college or P-TECH where it's really, I'm going to help you get an associate degree in high school, you know, whatever it takes. Some chartered networks are um, 
four-year college for all. And, you know, there's a, a strong pledge in everything at that school is about every kid into a four-year college. So th different schools describe their few core ideas in different ways. But I think a, a school visit will help you understand that every school is, um, every good school is focused on a few core ideas and that those ideas really can become an, an animating mission that um, that both creates a, a clear identity and a, a real sense of focus for a school community. I'd say maybe another thing school leaders starting on such a journey might consider nowadays more and more is joining a school network or more than one school network. Maybe you want to, can you can you share a little bit about your experience with school networks? Yeah, we're we're excited about the point in history that that we're at. You know, we've just finished a 25-year period of time where the federal government was highly involved, and they're now less involved, and so we're in a period of more flexibility, and we're we're in a period of time where people are adopting a broader set of aims and objectives for school. Uh, so it's becoming, and, and technology continues to mature, and so all of this creates a real opportunity but what that means for school teams is that you now have the, the ability to adopt new aims, to develop a new learning model, to build a technology stack, to build uh, a talent development pipeline, and then to build a sense of community around that. And that's six or seven really, really challenging things uh, to do. And there's just not many school leadership teams that can do all of those things well. And so we encourage schools to work together in networks. Um, those can be really informal leadership networks. An example would be uh, League of Innovative Schools is a, a network that will be meeting here in Seattle in a couple of weeks. So that's an informal leadership network. Uh, there are some regional networks. Um, the, the Pittsburgh Personalized Learning Network is a group of uh, uh, for super high-performing school districts outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, the districts all happen to be in League of Innovative Schools as well. Um, so that's an example of a, of a regional network with a, you know, kind of a strategic focus. Then there are a set of voluntary networks. Um, there are networks like Expeditionary Learning, EL Education, New Tech Network, Big Picture, um, and these these are folks that have a, a learning model and a set of digital resources. We think those are worth looking at. And then uh, all the way to manage networks like chartered management organizations. So we, we think for everybody, there's a, a network from informal to formal uh, that will help them reduce the complexity of the work and and to do. Um, better work at scale and i will link also to the the podcast episode you have uh we're talking about your book uh and about new tech network new tech networking spe specifically because we won't have time to go into all the deal right now but how how do you feel that the more formal networks like new tech uh are going to evolve over the next few years do you think yeah. there can be a big evolution like we've seen in other industries interesting that um, new tech and high tech uh, those networks started about the same time um, 
20 years ago, um, New Tech Network made the choice to, uh, to, to pick a platform early on. It was really the first platform network. And when I say a platform network, I think of a group of schools that share a learning model, a, a digital platform, and then a set of uh, featured learning opportunities. And I, I am bullish on platform networks as being um, as being super scalable. Uh, we're seeing more um, charter management organizations adopt that strategy and become platform networks. Almost all of the CMOs are now um, platform networks. We're seeing small school districts really becoming platform networks. You know, with a single learning model, a, a, a unified tech stack, and and a shared set of tech uh, talent development resources. Uh, so we do think platform networks are a big, um, a big scaling idea. Um, I, I'm afraid it's not going to grow as fast as I I would like to see. Is this is a really decentralized uh, sector? Um, but we think more schools operating. Uh, in conjunction with uh, other schools on on platforms is is really the 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 best way to scale quality. Uh, and I, I agree that you know you might see a convergence. You you mentioned schools being part of multiple networks. Um, I was listening to an interview of uh, the CEO of Kip. They're having trouble building new schools, especially in the East Coast. They're thinking of models which looks sound similar to a more virtual like decoupling of building management and then other parts of of of, of uh, growing school uh, learning experience of designing learning experiences so you might see more of these networks converge like you've seen in other parts of the world do you feel you said you don't you're, you're afraid it won't be as fast as you'd hoped but sometimes in these types of platforms you see a tipping point you see, because because they're virtual because they're uh, they're not so much constrained um, some books about platform talk about zero marginal cost so it doesn't really cost that much sometimes it costs zero to to scale such a network do you think there's going to be a tipping point at some point where it's going to yeah. scale fast yeah it's a great question um, one reason for pause here is that I would say we're very early on in terms of understanding uh, competency-based education. Um, I, I'll have a new blog up um, today on, on moving beyond courses. Uh, for, for 200 years, we've, we've organized secondary education around this idea of courses. Um, it was an industrial era construct and it was um, th this idea came about around the same time as shipping containers. Shipping mm -hmm. containers were um, the standards um, internationally were were set about ninety years ago, and it really has transformed international shipping. So either one of us could walk out the door and 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 look at a highway, and you'd see shipping containers go by, and I, I could look at the ocean and and see ships full of shipping containers. So. The standard spread across the world and became very valuable. And similarly, I-beams and, and concrete elevator cores were the, were the central idea of building 
Um, so these, these ideas have all come together around industrialization and courses as the, both the architecture and the way we, we measure units of learning um, have been a useful construct in education, um, but we think we've, we've reached the, the limits of where um, those are now really inhibiting learning. They, they block innovation, they block integration, um, and they're just a lousy form of measurement. So moving beyond that is gonna require us to, to create new units of learning uh, some people are suggesting that badges and micro-credentials are a new way to, to measure and signal learning. Uh, but because we're at this early invention stage of, of trying to understand how to organize school in ways that doesn't rely so heavily on things called courses and seat time, uh, I, I think we're going to be in a, in a rather long period of invention before we we hit uh, a tipping point I, I would say one thing that's blocking the uh, innovation in this space is the reliance on standardized testing around grade level proficiency that sort of has locked in the idea of age cohorts and courses and we also don't have very good technology that helps schools create really dynamic progressions where kids are moving at their own rate. So I think we're at an exciting period of invention, but one where things are gonna be um, a bit messy for a while. I guess for me, it, it's all the more reason for schools to work in networks and not try to figure this all out on their own. Yeah, and what, what you're saying, uh, the, the comparison to shipping containers also, it sounds like we have these constructs and we need to be able to find new ones before right. we spread them like the shipping container when it came into existence, ports and trucks and everyone were able to, to coordinate, but we need to find right. new, new modalities before we are. And, yeah, and we don't really have that. So yeah. we're at this point where we have a, an invention challenge of, of designing the new shipping container for, for education. So any any parting thoughts, Tom, for for smaller schools who are for they're feeling they need to do something different. They're kind of pressured by all these yeah. external forces and the past, and they're they're but they're they're feeling kind of adventurous and want to do something yeah. different. I, you know, really really simple advice is uh, get clear on just a couple ideas that you want to be great at, um, and and repeat that mantra. Every day, all day, um, you've inherited a, a complex system of human development called school. Um, try to, to pick one or two things that, um, that you're uniquely good at or want to be uniquely good at and really make that the, the focal point for your leadership and your communication. Uh, I, I think you'll find that it both builds a real sense of identity for you and your community, but also in, improves the, the quality of your program. Thank you so much. This, this fits also very well with what we are saying about schools, value proposition, differentiation, and community. So thanks yep. so much. Thanks for your time. I know you're a very busy man, and I'm sure to provide all the links in the show notes. Thank you, Tom.
Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to School Growth Mastery, brought to you by Enroll Hunt. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe to our show and share this episode with your fellow educators. You can support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or your preferred podcasting app. That way, more school leaders like you will find us. If you want to learn more about school growth, visit our website at enrollhand.com and please do check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, goodbye for now.